what jumps out to you as kind of surprising or interesting about the different roles of faculty? So I think the surprising thing to me in this paper and working through this process is that we give an immense amount of thinking around how we very deliberately teach our learners to acquire the skills they need for their domain-specific training. And we don't approach our own faculty development with that same deliberate idea. And to me, what this creates is a pathway, not only for the learners, but also for faculty development so that I as a faculty know what I should be bringing to teaching in zone one versus zone two versus zone three. And this allows the faculty development pathway to help those faculty become experts in each one. And maybe you don't have to be an expert in all of them, but it allows us to have a deliberate, meaningful way of helping our faculty gain skill to meet the learners where they are in each zone. Hello, I'm here with our Center for Medical Simulation Grand Rounds on teaching, coaching, or debriefing with good judgment, a roadmap for implementing with good judgment across the sim zones. Although this is to some degree from the shameless promotion department, I'm really excited to talk about this work with two of my co-authors and to share some of the ideas here. This was published in Advances in Simulation, along with Mary Fay, first author, Chris Rusin, myself, Kate Morse, Janice Palaganis, and senior author, Damian Shield. I'd like to start by introducing uh, Kate and Mary, and uh, Mary Fay, um, nurse, PhD, faculty member and researcher, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so my uh, my clinical background is adult critical care uh, nursing, and I have been working in with clinical simulations since about two thousand and nine, and um, have worked, as you know, for quite a while with the Center for Medical Simulation, who I still teach with, and um, was just so happy to have discovered the Sim Zones debriefing with good judgment combo and how well it works together. So I'm excited to be talking about this today. Great. And Mary, um, I'm going to be drawing on your interesting and extensive experience uh, leading the sim simulation program earlier at the University of Maryland, mm -hmm. having worked at the George Washington University School of Nursing, mm -hmm. and also uh, your long-term collaboration with the National League of Nursing. So I think there's a lot of interesting uh, threads that we can pull on there mm -hmm. as we think about the applied aspects of positioning simulation to solve real problems for people. Great. And Kate Morse, uh, another nurse, PhD researcher and professor, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I also came to CMS around 2008, 2009. I think Mary and I were together in our very first course when I, we were both starting our doctoral journey and became immersed in the world of debriefing with good judgment and really thinking deeply about how we could work with that. And 
you know, at the time I was still in clinical practice as an acute care nurse practitioner, it made me a better nurse practitioner, a better teacher as a professor of nurse practitioners. And after finishing my doctorate, I also worked full time at the Center for Medical Simulation and now um, teach in the online courses and um, spend time as the assistant dean over uh, innovations and experiential learning at Drexel and have the joy of making people's simulation dreams come true. So for me, this paper, I think the best sum up of, of sim zones and the application in this world came from one of our learners in our graduate program who said, sim zones answered the question, I didn't know I had. <laughs> so, so people are, it's landing on people in a wonderful way and helping them think of different ways to work with learners and for us, different ways to work with faculty. Great. Well, the other authors on this paper, uh, Christopher Rusin is a PhD organizational behavior scholar like myself. He and the team at Boston Children's Hospital developed the SimZones um, approach, and we'll be digging into that in a bit more detail. Uh, Janice Palaganis is a powerhouse uh, nurse practitioner and PhD researcher who leads the PhD in simulation program within the PhD in health professions program at the uh, Massachusetts General Hospital Institute for Health Professions. And Damian Shield now is the Vice Chair of Faculty Affairs at Boston University uh, Department of Emergency Medicine. And uh, along with Mary Fay, herded all the cats to pull this article together. So I'd like to begin with talking a little bit about why did we write this paper? Um, Mary and Kate, as I remember it, there were a couple problems that we kept stumbling across <laughs> ourselves as we were trying to design simulations and again and again found faculty in our faculty development courses struggling with. I wonder if you could talk with me a little bit about how you see this sort of motivating problem. Mm -hmm. um, sure, I'm happy to jump into that one. So yeah, Jenny, you know, it, it was really obvious to me over the years um, when people would come to our faculty development courses, which were very much focused on debriefing with good judgment. And our learners would often struggle with, you know, this is great for this type of simulation, but when I'm in other types of situations, just for example, just teaching a basic psychomotor skill like intubation or putting in an IV, do I really need to be doing this cognitive frame-based debriefing discussion? And so sort of intuitively, people knew that wasn't the answer. And I could see the problem also, because at that time, I was um, the director of the simulation program at the University of Maryland School of Nursing. And I can remember thinking to myself, well, sometimes when they come into a simulation, if they don't do their hand hygiene, I don't care what their frames are. They just need to wash their hands. And so I, you know, I recognized that there were times when people just needed instructions and they didn't really need to have a deep debriefing um, discussion, but I wasn't exactly sure what that was supposed to be. So it was a dilemma I saw in my learners, but it was also a dilemma that I was having myself as an educator. And Kate? I love that. And Mary, I, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, and oftentimes people would design simulations or I would see my own faculty design simulations and the learners would come in the room and you'd be in the control room and you'd be like, I don't think they're ready to be here. 
<laughs> how did we know that they, they knew how to apply and use a defibrillator while they talked about it in class? We're missing something. Like there's a big gap between, you know, telling someone, because I, and maybe there was a little teaching involved, but I'm probably more telling than teaching. So I, I thoroughly agree with that, the perspective you shared and adding on the idea of asking ourselves, how do we know our learners are ready to be in this space? And I think for me, that that slice of the sim zones really has changed how we meet and develop and think about designing in every zone. But just asking that one simple question opens up people's minds to, well, we told them four years ago. <laughs> Why can't they do it? We're surprised they don't know, you know, they don't have recall or they've had substantial skill decay. So I think that that also was a substantial problem in all clinical domain programs. Mm -hmm. So Kate, uh, just to put it in a really crystalline form, what is that one simple question? How do we know the learners are ready to be in this learning zone? Right. The problem we were trying to tackle is none of us were really clear about when should we be doing teaching, when should we be doing coaching, and when should we be doing debriefing. And I think, speaking for myself, I often found myself a little wrong-footed in the middle of a debriefing where mm -hmm. I realized I really had failed to teach something in advance, or... I was in an instructional situation and I realized, wow, I really need to know what people feel and think about this before I do any more instructing. Mm -hmm. So I think our goal here was to help all of us be crystal clear about when to teach, coach, and debrief, and when and how to be transparent about our own thinking as the learning leader in those conversations. And we're going to use this term learning leader throughout our conversation because we think there are different faces of the learning leader. There's the teaching face, there's the coaching face, and then there's the facilitator or curious inquirer face. And we'll talk about each of those. So I wanna shift gears and just talk about why yet another approach to curricular design and simulation. Um, we all know there are a plethora of interesting approaches, incredibly valuable approaches for curriculum design and SIM, as well as across health professions education. Um, but I'm thinking that we were motivated by some sort of a sense of a gap in what was out there. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, Kate or Mary, if you could talk a little bit about your feeling or thoughts about that. Uh, Jenny, you know, when I was listening to you, um, ask that question, um, I want to be really clear that we are not saying that people shouldn't use well-known approaches to teaching skills like mastery learning, rapid cycle, deliberate practice. This is not that. I think that this approach, there's the sim zones approach and the debriefing with good judgment approach. And I think that what this approach really focuses on is how the instructor relates to the learners at different developmental stages. So the existing frameworks that are out there, I think are fine. This is very much about the teacher learner relationship and how do we see the learner? What kind of learning is expected? What are the conversational strategies we use in the different zones? So to me, that's more um, what this paper is about. And then 
kind of the icing on the cake, or maybe it's the sprinkles on the icing on the cake in this paper, is that this also helps us think about faculty development, which I think is also incredibly important. You know, we don't develop our clinical faculty very well, I would say, in, in uh, nursing and medicine. We take great clinicians and we say, here, go and be a teacher. Um, but this approach also helps us think about how do I develop the faculty that are teaching these different things? Because facilitating an interprofessional sim is a very different approach and a very different relationship with your learners than if you're seeing them for the first time and you're teaching them a basic skill without you know, the full-scale context around it. So Mary, I'd like to just summarize back what I heard from you, which is there are marvelous uh, curricular design approaches and there are marvelous teaching, coaching and debriefing approaches out there. Mm -hmm. What the gap is, is implicit behind all of that, not well articulated behind all of that, sort of mysterious behind all of that is, what is my relationship with the learner at this moment? Right. Am I instructing? Am I a guide on the side who's coaching? Mm -hmm. Am I a sage on the stage who's instructing? Or am I a person who's sitting back and helping people reflect on their own practice? And I think a lot of times we ourselves were really confused about what am I to this learner right now? Right. Kate, would you like to comment on that? So I think the surprising thing to me in this paper and working through this process is that we give an immense amount of thinking around how we very deliberately teach our learners to acquire the skills they need for their domain specific training. And we don't approach our own faculty development with that same deliberate idea. And to me, what this creates is a pathway not only for the learners, but also for faculty development so that I as a faculty know what I should be bringing to teaching in zone one versus zone two versus zone three. And this allows the faculty development pathway to help those faculty become experts in each one. And maybe you don't have to be an expert in all of them, but it allows us to have a deliberate, meaningful way of helping our faculty gain skill to meet the learners where they are in each zone. The other thing that, the other problem that this solved that perhaps maybe we didn't know that we had is <clears throat> at least, and I'll speak, you know, predominantly on the nursing side of the world, is that there was a substantial disarticulation between skills training and simulation and skills were not viewed as simulation. So the, again, it goes to Mary's point, the amount of time that we spend educating our clinical faculty who generally teach skills is very small um, compared to the amount of time they spend in learners and nor were we being as deliberate in the development of those skill activities in zone one and thinking about what do the learners need to be ready to be in there? What is my stance as a learning leader? Um, what are we trying to accomplish here? As as we were in the in some of the other curricular models that talked about, you know, immersive simulation. So I think for me, what this does is it levels the playing field. It brings in and values equally how we teach skills in zone one, how do we apply them in zone two, how do we contextualize them in zone three, and what happens in clinical practice for us in academia, which is probably zone four. Uh, and I, I think it brings good judgment 
everywhere. And that changes the stance of the teaching learning relationship in a very positive way. Great. Let's talk a bit now about sim zones itself. We've alluded to that phrase and that term a number of times, and I'd like to unpack and define it a little bit with both of you right now. Mm -hmm. First, a little bit of background. Uh, the concept of sim zones was designed by uh, Chris Rusin and the team at Boston Children's Hospital. And that impressive program over many years has had to work at a very large scale across multiple disciplines in Boston Children's Hospital and get learners at all different levels and all different professions ready to do various different things. And so the team um, came up with this idea of Sim Zones. And Mary, I wonder if you could just talk us through it in a sort of basic fundamental zone one way, actually. <laughs> nice. Um, sure. Well, as we've already alluded to, SimZones is a, a framework for curriculum and faculty development. And um, when SimZones was originally developed at Boston Children's by Chris and his team, they defined um, several different zones that the learners move through along their essential learning pathway. And so zone zero is instructor-less learning. And so this is students using apps or computerized devices that give them feedback to sort of um, experience whatever the, the skill is that you're teaching, whether it's a psychomotor skill or a communication skill, but to experience it sort of at a very basic level, understand the facts around it. Zone one then is when learners are in the presence of an instructor, but now learning the very basics of a skill. So decontextualized, you know, it's an intubation head on a table. It's, uh, you know, role-playing as undergraduate nursing students are learning how to do an SBAR phone call. That's zone one, and that's basic instruction. Following zone one, there's usually some sort of a summative evaluation um, in there somewhere to be sure that the students have kind of got the basic zone one skills down. Then in zone two, learners move on now and carry those skills into a realistic context. So this is when we might begin immersive simulations in zone two. Their skills aren't so great. And so this is why they need you as a coach to help them polish up those skills in zone two. And then zone three, um, originally defined as ongoing development of teams and systems. And so zone three is taking learners who've got their basic skills, have practiced them in context, so they've got some flexibility with those skills, being able to deploy them in different situations, now really challenging them at whatever the edge of their learning happens to be, which is gonna be different if it's a nursing student or medical student versus an experienced, say, emergency department team. And then zone four is learning from real life practice. And so again, in, the, um, in an acute care setting, that might be experienced teams that have worked together for a long time, in a pre-licensure um, health profession setting, it may be still uni-professional teams, but now in the actual clinical environment, doing their clinical rotations or their clerkships and debriefing and learning from that. So that's kind of an overview of the zones. Great. And Kate, uh, if I could ask you to just think of an example just for our listeners of a zone two situation where we might be doing some coaching of some sort and then back down from that to 
what might have been the zone one instruction around that. I just think that journey possibly starting from zone two and going backing into zone one to figure out what we should teach is uh, an illustration that might be helpful. Right. So I think probably the clearest example is uh, working with our acute care nurse practitioner students. So our zone two simulation for them in um, taking on the new role as being a team leader in emergency situations uh, was a scaffolded simulation where we did pause and discuss because they had some of the skills from the perspective as a nurse, but now they were changing perspectives in being the team leader and having to make the clinical decisions. So we did uh, pause and discuss with coaches in the room, a clinical content expert and myself, and that allowed them to practice the skill, get coaching, go back, do the same skill again if they were a little you know, far from the standard um, or try it on or try the language on and see the impact on the rest of the team. So that allowed them to practice the skill with deliberate coaching. And occasionally, and I think this is the expert level as you get deep into the zones, is if you're coaching and you coach on the same thing three times, you're probably coaching on the wrong thing. So then to me, the right move then is to pause and explore and use good judgment to try and understand maybe we're making an assumption about what the learner needs and they need something else. So let's figure out what that is. And I think you can do that in zone two if your coaching is not working. Um, and then the, what the zone one piece for that was is they came in, they uh, worked with the um, defibrillator and how to utilize the defibrillator. So the skill, the psychomotor skill, they came in and they worked with what is the language when you walk in the room and you're the team leader? How does that sound like you? That sounds different than the person beside you. How do you recap? What does that sound like for you? Give some coaching around that. How do you invite speaking up in an emergency? You know, that, that first 30 seconds of an emergency, how do you want to set that stage? And we worked on that language that they then took into zone two when they had a mannequin and you know things were not going well. Thanks, Kate. So recapping, um, we often start with the situations that are most important for the person to be able to manage um, in zone two. And then as curriculum designers, we back down into zone one to figure out what do we need to instruct them on. And in your case, they needed some instruction on what does team leading sound like in the first 30 seconds? What are the actual phrases? Um, I might practice those. I might be given a script. I might hear or watch a video. Um, there might be even some zone zero intros to that. And then I come into a coached, mentored situation in zone two. Mm -hmm. What I think is um, kind of mind-blowing or was mind-blowing for me as I got introduced to the sim zones is I sort of thought all simulation is zone three. We do a full field uh, simulation and then we do a reflective debriefing. And you know, like many people in our field, when Betsy Hunt published her article in Chest on Rapid Cycle Deliberate Practice, my mind was completely blown as an athlete. I was like, of course we should be doing that. What was I thinking um, that reflective debriefing would be enough? And so what I think we all 
are loving and enjoying about, you know, uh, Chris Rusin and Peter Weinstock's SimZone idea is um, it answers the question we didn't know we had, which is there's zone one instruction, there's zone two coaching and practice, there's zone three uh, more stressful full field simulations, and then there's zone four learning from our real practice. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's talk a little bit about with good judgment. Um, and I'm using the moniker with good judgment because what we've done here is tried to take some of the values and practices of with good judgment and think about how do they apply when I'm instructing and teaching? How do they apply when I'm coaching? Not just how do they apply when I'm debriefing? Mm -hmm. So Mary, could you get us started with some of the main ideas about how does it bridge those three activities? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think this is kind of one of the fun things about hashing um, out the ideas in this paper uh, with the team. And I can especially remember being here one night and Kate and I on the phone and hashing this out. And when I think about debriefing with good judgment, there are a couple parts of it that I can now see are consistent no matter what zone you're in. And then there's another part of it that's kind of adaptable. So the parts of debriefing with good judgment that are consistent no matter what zone you're in are, first of all, the idea of holding the learner to high standards while still holding them in high regard. And people familiar with our organization um, will know what I mean when I say that those values are really what's embedded in our basic assumption, which is kind of our, our underlying philosophy, um, that all of our learners are intelligent, capable, care about doing our be their best and want to improve. And so having that idea of holding them to high standards while still holding them in high regard is our relationship with the learners, no matter what zone we're in. Mm -hmm. Kind of following up on that, and I think a token of respect for the learner is the idea that we as the learning leader are always transparent in our thinking with the learners. And so we are very clear with them about what we're observing in their performance. We're clear with them about why this might be a problem, or if they're doing something great, why this is such a great thing. Um, and then giving them clear feedback to help them get better. So the transparent communication, another super important part of uh, the with good judgment approach. And then the part of the with good judgment approach that varies are the conversational strategies that you use. And this kind of ties back to how you relate to the learner. So that in zone one, you're a teacher and it's okay to just tell them how to do stuff. We don't have to constantly be asking questions. Um, in zone two, the conversational strategy is similar to what an athletic coach would use. Hey, I see you doing this. Do this instead. It's going to work out better for you. Go ahead, give it a try. So that's kind of the approach to coaching. Again, transparent with what we're observing and why it's a problem. And, and importantly, suggestions for how they can do it better. They don't have to guess how to do it better. And then the conversational strategy in zones three and four, that's when we become more of a debriefer. So that is more the reflective learning questions when we get to that stage. Um, so that's kind of how we saw debriefing with good judgment as we started to kind of dissect it and try to understand the, the internal workings of it. Okay, well, you want I totally agree, yeah. Mary. And, and as you're speaking, I remember our conversation around parsing out the differences in zone one and zone two between telling and teaching. 
you know, that oftentimes I think we tell people things and we think we're teaching, but we're actually just telling them things because we're not being transparent with our thinking. We're not providing the why. And perhaps in emergency situations, that's very appropriate because it's a time sensitive, time pressured area. But in the teaching environment in zone one and zone two, I think we should be teaching more than we're telling. Um, and that's that transparency piece of why is this important? And, and I love how you said, and more importantly, how can you improve? Let's try it again. Mm -hmm. And I think then the learner feels that they have a partner versus someone who's just, you know, it's unidirectional. Um, and I just, I just received an email from a student today, an undergraduate student, and we now open all our courses with the basic assumption. It's on our syllabus. It's in our course shells. And they were emailing to thank us for putting that in because they said it, uh, they felt that they had a partner from day one in the course. And I think that's the impact that comes across in all zones. Uh -huh. nice. uh, and that, that changes the dynamic uh -huh. of learning because oh, then the learner is much, I think, more open to hearing the feedback and being willing to be in that desirable difficulty, productive uh -huh. struggle area, which is so hard for us yeah. as humans, because you know we want to be good. <laughs> so um I'm hearing from both of you that the stance of the learning leader that is my uh, obligation and responsibility to share where I'm coming from and what I'm concerned about and what I'm trying to accomplish, although it may seem like you're just advocating for your point of view, it can have this paradoxical impact that the learner um, trusts you that they know where you're coming from and why you're doing what you're doing. Um, so what I'd like to do now is synthesize what we've spoken about in terms of sim zones and the with good judgment approach and explore with you both the teaching, coaching and debriefing across the zones um, teaching being primarily zone one, coaching being primarily zone two, debriefing being primarily zone three and four, though there's certainly some overlap in any of those that can come to bear when needed. Um, one of the things that's on my mind here is some of the specific different conversational strategies you alluded to earlier, Mary, how those might differ across teaching, coaching, and debriefing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one area I think we might want to cover here, uh, but there may be another place that you'd like to start. So uh, what jumps out to you about teaching, coaching, and debriefing across the zones with good judgment? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have this picture in my mind when we think about teaching skills, which we now think of as zone one, um, some poor, well-intended nursing student who's like, struggling to put in a Foley catheter and keep everything sterile, who has an instructor standing over him or her going, okay, now look at what you're doing. And they look and they're like, okay, look at what you're doing. And they're like, oh my God, what does she want me to look at? I have no idea what I'm doing here. And, you know, it's such a frustrating, confusing 
experience for the students because they they just want to know like push it in further or don't push it in that far move your hand this way because they just don't know and so and i think you know instructors being well intended you know we've got this this phrase the the sage on the stage or the guide on the side and somehow sage on the stage has become some sort of a teaching sin and it's not because sometimes the best thing we can do for our learners is share our expertise with them and say, look, clearly you don't know how to do this. So this is the way to do it. And, you know, that's zone one, you know, imagine teaching a child how to tie their shoes and stand there going to the child. Now look at what you're doing. We don't do that. We say to the kids, hold your shoelace like this, move your hands like that. That's what people need at that time, because, you know, their cognitive load is so high, just thinking about what the step is that when we throw questions at them, it's, it's almost impossible for them to answer the questions because at that point they, they can't think at that level. They, they don't have the skill um, at all. And so I think it's, you know, I think it's going to be a great relief to the learners if the um, people stop being afraid of being the sage on the stage and understand sometimes that being what we might think of as teacher centered, it's actually learner centered because that's what they need from us at that time. Um, <laughs> Teacher-centered is the new learner-centered. <laughs> um, Mary, sorry. while you're talking, um, if I could just jump in for a sure. second. You know, what sort of strikes me is also the idea of at the beginning of zone one is having that couple minute of conversation. Listen, where you guys are learning brand new skills, you have no context for this, you've never done it, you've seen a video, you know, that's nice, but not particularly helpful when you're trying to put on gloves and not touch sterile things and move the legs and, and you're, you can't, you know, you feel like your body is no longer your own. Um, and there's so much going on. And this is how I'm going to coach you in this area. And then we're going to stop pause and unpack the whys behind it. So I, or however you want to structure the conversation, but I think the value of orienting the learner to, hey, this is how we're going to work together in this space today. And then when they come to Sam, hey, now we're going to change how we work because now we're taking the skill that you have, you're, you know, deemed to be competent in, in a low stress, lower cognitive load area. And we're going to make it a little bit more complex. And this is how we're going to work here. This is what it might feel like. This is, you know, speak up if it feels not good to you and we'll work it out. But I think that value of previewing, I think makes it less instructor centered because it's transparent. So what I'm hearing is for zone one or teaching with good judgment, we're thinking about explicit statements that orient the learner, um, explicit statements that might let the learner know why uh, we sometimes call those previewing statements. So today we're going to be working on an interrupted stitch. The value of this in uh, closing wounds is X, Y, Z. And we're going to take about five minutes of solo practice. Then I'll give you some coaching. Then we'll go back and try it on a different uh, model. Something like that. So they know what they're doing, why they're doing it, and perhaps the process. Right. Uh -huh. And I think anxiety comes down, cognitive load comes yep. down. And they're able to engage because they know the rules of engagement and how they're going to work. I also heard in your example, Mary, efficiency comes up because essentially asking a guess what I'm thinking question or a hint and hope sort yeah. of direction yeah. when you're in zone one is extremely confusing to the non-oriented learner. So 
With that, let's pivot and just think a little bit about zone two, where we're often doing customized coaching to help people with particular situations. Mm -hmm. What's happening there in the learning leader's mind? What's happening in terms of conversational strategies? Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that. Um, to contrast zone two to zone one, you know, zone one, there's a somewhat standard approach to how you're going to teach this thing, because as Kate said, the skill is not there. They don't know what it is. We have to help them. Zone two now is where little idiosyncrasies start to show up. And so I may have taught all four of these learners who are in the lab with me today, whatever the procedure is, putting in a Foley or resuscitation, whatever the skill is. But as they move into zone two, now I start to see little idiosyncrasies show up because, you know, Kate might have steps one, two, and three down pat, and she struggles with step four. Mary might have step one and two well, but but step three is where I'm having trouble. And so the coach's role in zone two, just like with an athletic coach, is you've got to assess each one of your athletes or each one of your students individually to pinpoint where their problem is and then work with them to figure out what's gonna help them get past that problem. So it becomes much more individualized when you're in zone two. You know, And I'll continue to draw parallels to athletic coaching because in athletic coaching, when the coach tells an athlete to do something, the coach can't just then walk away. The coach needs to stay there, watch the athlete redo it in the new way and give the athlete feedback about whether or not they've met the standard or whether or not they need further adjustments. So again, it's very individualized. Coach, continue to observe, give feedback as people are, are moving along and working out their sort of individual kinks. I'd like to just highlight a word that you use there, Mary, because we often lose track of it uh, in these conversations, which is the standard. So one of the consistent things across the zones is holding people to high standards while holding them in high regard. And the um, move there then in zone two and coaching is there's a standard that has been determined by the literature or by the program or by the instructor and the learner is getting customized, tailored coaching to meet that standard. And I'm not letting go of that standard as the instructor. The other thing implied in what you're saying, Mary, is um, some conversational moves, um, which I'd like to just unpack for a moment, which is again, like zone one, I might preview, hey, we're gonna be talking today about um, how you do a SBAR statement when you're calling for help on the phone. Mm -hmm. um, I noticed that your situational description went on for three minutes and I'm worried you're gonna lose the uh, person on the other end of the phone with such a long situation. Mm -hmm. You really need to have that short and crisp. So what I've done there is preview describe or advocate what I saw and then provide coaching. So in the parlance, some of us use preview advocacy coach. Mm -hmm. Kate, I'm wondering whether you have any comments about coaching in zone two you'd like to add at this point. I, I think it's sometimes also still giving an example. You know, if you're coaching, they may have an absolute lack of examples depending on where they are in their training. So you may need to 
coach to the standard and add, it might sound something like this. Now you, you try it so that it sounds like you and you own the language. So I think the value of giving concrete examples uh, is helpful for them at that juncture as well. Okay, let's now talk about zone three, um, continuous improvement of teams um, and skills in a kind of more fully immersive context, but not necessarily in situ, not necessarily in the real context. Um, and our journey into this uh, started with debriefing with good judgment. How do we actually explore people's thought processes while also revealing our own? But I think in the course of writing this paper, we hashed out some things and maybe got some more clarity here that we hadn't had before. Mary, wondering where you ended up with all that. I'm trying to remember what we hashed out in the paper. Oh. <laughs> and, and maybe we didn't, Mary, maybe we started with that and we were kind of clear on it. I'm just, I wanted yeah, to give you an yeah. opening there. Yeah, cool. Um, so when I think about a learner that I would have in a zone three simulation, these are learners who've been through the zones zero, one, and two simulations, because I, I just, I want to just double click click, triple click, highlight what Kate said before, which is this: the zones are all about making sure that people get it at one stage before we have them move on to the other stage. And so if I'm putting them in a zone three simulation, I'm pretty comfortable that they've done the zone zero, zone one, zone two training, and now they're ready to kind of more fully explore different situations. And so in, in zone three, when we begin debriefing, it is usually not about telling people how to do a skill. Rather, it's more about exploring how this group of people who I know have the requisite skills are still having trouble for some reason in this setting. And that's why debriefing is called for, because I can see them having trouble, but I often don't understand why. And so it may be that they're not seeing the data I think I'm sending. They might be interpreting the data in a different way. They might have lost situational awareness and not really understood what was going on around them. And so that's why debriefing is needed, because I know the skills are there but they still might not be being deployed in the best way possible. And I've got to explore to figure out why that is. So Mary, um, I think sometimes people think about that as we all agree, it's a really good idea to get two large bore IVs into a patient who's in hypovolemic shock and yet the team did not do so. Right. What is the interesting things that were going on with them such that they didn't? So those are the kinds of things we're gonna explore with preview, advocacy, inquiry, listen um, in, in a, for example, zone three debriefing with good judgment. Right. And everything you just said there advertised curiosity about the learners, which I think that is the stance in zone three is I am really curious about what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to our last topic here, which is applying this across um, preclinical, clinical, the classroom, um, or simulation. And Kate, you know, uh, in your um, dean position at Drexel, I know you've been thinking a lot about how to construct curricula, how to help faculty be ready. And I wonder if you could just give us some comments about how you see this SimZones with good judgment overlaying some of the challenges you face there. 
As all of us in nursing schools uh, struggle with the implementation and the understanding of our new essential model for our graduate and undergraduate nursing, I think this is the opportunity and the, and the moment of transformation and sim zones has really helped us think about it in a different way so that we're, re we're, we're not disconnecting the courses, we're actually connecting them with sim zones and answering the question, you know, when a senior clinical um, faculty member comes to me and says, I wanna do a zone three sim. And we'll be like, that's fabulous. How do we know they're ready to be there? And they'll say, well, we taught them in fundamentals. And that was three years ago. How do we know? They've had, you know, they've had skill decay, they've had variable clinical. So let's do a little zone one refresh before we put them into simulation. Or let's do a scaffolding approach that day. So zone one, a little zone two scaffolding, and then put them into the full zone three disaster sim. So they're ready to be in there and really apply the skills, which has changed how faculty think about what are those skills that they need to consider that the learners have to have to be in zone three? How does that get scaffolded across the curriculum and across from course to course? And then it's flipped how we do our faculty education. We just did a rework of one of our courses because we weren't walking the talk in a really good way of how do we know the faculty are ready to be doing simulated debriefings if we've not done enough zone one work and we're designing now some zone zero VR stuff to help them get ready before they come into zone one to learn conversational strategies. So we just like flipped our whole faculty development to be sure that we were doing it. Because isn't it interesting that you, know, you really <laughs> apply it to yourself but it's like aha moment. So I think it, it really gives us a new way to ask questions and, and frees up um, the content from being isolated course to course. So I'm hearing you say it allows your school, for example, to have a bit of a progression, whether it's for the nursing students or for the faculty to be ready. Yes, yeah. yeah. And um, Mary, uh, final word here. Um, we've sort of talked about sim zones, debriefing with good judgment, the problem of not knowing whether I'm teaching, coaching, or debriefing. That's sort of where we started. Um, and the clarity that we've experienced trying to apply this across the design of various curricula we work with, whether it's for students or whether it's for faculty. Mm -hmm. um, Chris Rusin, who developed these ideas with his team at Boston Children's, and Damian Shield, the senior author on this paper, have also done some really interesting work applying this across uh, the curriculum in medical schools, helping medical students be ready using these zones. So that's a little bit of a flyover of where we've been. I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to uh, send us out with here. I think that, you know, at the heart of, of everything we do as educators is the teacher-learner relationship. And I like that this paper is explicit about what that can look like. Um, I think in order to get, in my mind, the optimal engagement from your students at each zone, because they'll trust you at each zone, you know, as Kate pointed up, the transparency and communication. 
you know, the honesty of our feedback, the belief that they can achieve the high standard that we're holding them to, all of those things um, occur at every single zone. And so I think to me, that's the big takeaway here is teacher-learner relationship, clarity, transparency equals trust equals engagement. And that's what I particularly like about this paper. Thank you, Mary and Kate.